Well, welcome back to the Powell View Christian Church Sunday Sermon Podcast. Once again, this is Trey Hinkle. I'm the senior pastor here at Powell View Christian Church in beautiful central Oregon, although this last week's been a bear. It's been over 100 all week. Uh, this Sunday coming up, we were supposed to have been outdoors, but uh, I believe because of the heat index, we're going to be driven back indoors. Thank goodness for air conditioning. I think of all the churches that meet every week faithfully, and they don't have that, and uh, I definitely feel for them. Uh, that's a that's a horrible thing to have to fight against. Well, we're still in the uh, the Gospel of Luke, but um, we are hitting a six-week period where we are going to be having unity services uh, here at the church, and um, we've come uh, up to one of Jesus' most famous parables, and I thought, you know, maybe for the next five or six weeks, we'll still be in the Gospel of Luke, but we'll just be looking at several of the parables that he records for us, and therefore there's kind of then a a theme that we have uh, in, in looking at the parables, so... Uh, because parables are very powerful. Stories are very powerful. I want you to listen to this story. Imagine for a moment that you're a single lady living in New York City. Um, life's tough. Uh, rising prices, inflation, it's it's getting tough. Uh, you, you're working at a local grocery store, but you try to, end, try to make ends meet by working as a bartender during the night shift. Your bills are due, and, and it's awfully cold, even in March. It seems like winter is kind of stuck around a little bit longer than expected. So it's cold as you head home from your bartending job at 3 o'clock in the morning. You find a parking spot, which is a miracle, because it's only about two blocks away from your apartment building. But that night air makes you wish that you had thought to bring a heavier coat. Suddenly, about a block from your apartment building, you hear footsteps uh, coming up behind you fast. You panic and you run. You don't feel the cold anymore. Your heart's racing. All of a sudden, though, you're grabbed from behind and you feel a sharp pain in your back. You realize you've been stabbed and so you scream for help. The man who has stabbed you assaults you and stabs you again and again. And throughout the entire attack, you're screaming and you you seem to have roused the attention of some of your neighbors. You see a couple of lights go on in the apartment building and somebody actually does open up their window and shouts out from the window for the man to leave you alone. And the man, startled, gets up and runs, runs away. And the window then closes again. But you're lying there and you're not cold because you feel the warmth of blood on your back. But it's quiet, too quiet. There's nobody around. The lights that had come on are now off again. And you wonder, where's the guy that opened up the window? Hasn't he come down? Why hasn't he come down? Where are the police? They they were surely called, but there are no sirens. You don't hear anything. So in desperation, you think that maybe if you can make it to your apartment, you can call an ambulance. So you try to get up. You're dizzy. You're stumbling. So you just crawl closer to your apartment door. Still, there's no sirens. Nobody around. No help. Finally, you hear some footsteps coming. (laughs) Yay, somebody's going to help you. You try to sit up. It's too hard. So you murmur the words, please help me. And you look up and to your horror, it's not somebody to help. The approaching person is actually your attacker who's come to finish off the job. Through the glass entrance of the door to your apartment building, you you can see down the hallway, there's somebody who is uh, opening up their door to look. You see that head peek out. 
You think, finally some help, but no, that door shuts again. And the man continues his attack on you until your life ebbs away. Now, you probably have heard that story before. A true story. Uh, The story ran in the New York Times in the mid-60s with a horrific headline. Because the outrage was that there may have been up to 38 witnesses of that attack, with not one single person going down to help the lady. No one calling the police. Everybody wanted to stay out of that business. It's a pretty powerful story. And, And stories are designed to be powerful. Stories can teach us things in very powerful ways because they allow us to kind of take our guard down so that whatever it is we're supposed to learn, we can, we can actually catch. It can be caught, not just taught. So Jesus would use parables uh, throughout his ministry for a couple of reasons. Uh, Matthew 13, he says, uh, the, the disciples came and said, well, why do you speak to the people in parables? And he said, well, the knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom of heaven has been given to you, but not to them. Whoever has will be given more, and he will have an abundance. Whoever does not have, even what he has will be taken from him. And here it is. He says, this is why I speak to them in parables. Though seeing, they do not see. Though hearing, they do not hear or understand. In other words, Jesus was saying, I I use parables to kind of divide the people. Do you have a desire to get to know God and to understand his truth? or, Or are you not willing to put in the work, right? And so I... I want people who really want to know about it, will they will push through. And those who really don't want to hear about it, they're going to dismiss what I have to say. And, and again, secondly, he speaks in parables so that um, those of us who do desire to understand can remember, because it's a story that we can relate to. We can remember it, and then we can think through the implications Throughout our week, throughout our month, throughout our life, we go, hmm, I, I'm going to go back to that parable and think this through. Mark 4, um, with many similar, similar parables, Mark 4, 33 and 34, with many similar parables, Jesus spoke the word to them as much as they could understand. And he did not say anything to them without using a parable. But when he was alone with his own disciples, he explained everything. See, Jesus taught in parables to help those who are willing to understand, to understand deeply. Okay, And it's my hope that though we may in these next five or six weeks hit some parables that you have heard before that are some old hat that you can actually say, you know what, I want to understand it more deeply. I I, I want to understand more of what God's heart is for Jesus telling me this story so that I might begin to live my life in accordance with his teaching. So as as the story that I began with there in New York City with a gal named Kitty Genovese, um, as I started with that story, and it made you wonder where where's compassion? Where is the compassion in this world? I wanted to look at then now a story in the Bible that also speaks of compassion. Again, it's a familiar story to most of you, even if you're not a regular churchgoer. It's the story of the Good Samaritan. It's found in Luke chapter 10, Luke chapter 10, verses 25 through 27. And I'm going to read uh, this uh, story uh, that Jesus is going to present in response to a question asked of him by an expert in the law. Verse 25 reads, on one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do? What must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, that's a great question. A lot of people have searched for the answer to that one. 
some ask that question, what can I do to inherit eternal life? But they, they may not really want to be wanting to know the real answer. Uh, they, they only want an answer that agrees with their own bias, uh, what they already think in their, their heart. Uh, Luke, in fact, tells us in verse 29 that the, the man really didn't want an answer. He just wanted to trip Jesus up uh, to, and to justify himself. So the answer to the question of how to inherit eternal life, though, is uh, going to be presented. Uh, and and uh, Jesus is going to ask the, the man a question in verses 26 through 28. What is written in the law? Jesus replied. How do you read it? And, and he answered, well, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus replied, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. The answer is love. Love God. Love your neighbor. Easy, right? Eh, don't be so sure. Because Jesus's answer begs further questions, if you think about it. Okay, love. What does love look like? How do I love? Even the first part is something that is people have contemplated for years and years and years. You know, how do I love God? Well, Jesus gave us an answer to that in John chapter 14, where he said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. So how do we show God that we love him? Well, we keep his commandments. Okay, so loving God, loving God is keeping his commandments, loving God. What does it look like, though? It, it seems like our vertical relationship with God, our connection with God, is based on our horizontal relationship with other people. You, you see, I bet that this guy had no problem with the first part of the answer. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength. He says, great, yeah, I do that. I, I do. I love God. And, and I, I make sure people know that I love God. I, I look good doing it. But that second part, loving my neighbor, well, that's a little bit more vague. Because if that means to do good to those who do good to me, there is no problem. I've got that covered. But I'm wondering if there's more. See, that, that's the problem with trying to get to heaven on your own accord. You, you, you realize that there's always going to be a shortcoming in you, right? He goes, yeah, you know what? I, there's just some, something doesn't seem to be right. So I need to ask you. I got to cover all my bases. Then, well, who is my neighbor? In other words, Jesus, who do I have to love in order to show God that I love him? So that's the context of this parable where Jesus is trying to show us a couple of things. First of all, what love looks like. And number two, who we are to love in that way. So let's read the parable. Starting in verse 30, in reply, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he fell into the hands of robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, they beat him, and they went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him pass by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was. And when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring oil and wine and then he put the man on his own donkey and took him to an inn to take care of him. The next day he took out two silver coins and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expenses you may have. Okay, so there is... Oh, and then which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? 
And the expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. And Jesus said, go thou and do likewise. Now, there are three descriptions in the story of the kind of love that God calls us to have for other people. What does love look like? Well, first of all, love is compassionate. In verse 33, it says that the Samaritan took pity on the man, or he had compassion on the man. And, and that word compassion or pity in, in the Greek meant to be moved to one's bowels. Now that sounds a little icky, but it's really not that gross because it means to love in such a way that you feel it deep, deep down, way in your gut. To the ancients, the gut was the seat of their emotions, not their heart, their gut. And so the, it's a compassion is to be moved as down to one's bowels. Now, it's easier for some people who have a natural bent towards empathy to feel this kind of compassion. You know, I, I grew up with a lot of empathy. I, I didn't choose it. It just is kind of a natural part of who I am. Uh, and, and it's great when you're trying to help people out who are in trouble. But when I'm watching TV and you could just tell that they're setting the storyline up for there to be conflict, I actually, there's something in my gut that makes me change the channel. Even if it's something as funny as America's Funniest Videos, sometimes it's not funny. Um, I am moved uh, to my bowels. I feel it in my gut, and I, I can't stand to watch it, and I have to turn it off. So some people have a, a natural bent towards empathy, but God wants all of us to have a love where we choose to have that kind of empathy. A love that's compassionate is a love that is able to put ourselves into the shoes of somebody else to understand more fully the trials and the pains that they go through. And sometimes that's not easy for us to do. It takes time. It takes, it takes a, a clear uh, intention to say, what would this person be feeling right now? And, and really try to get in there where you can almost feel it as if you were feeling it in your own bodies. In fact, if you go back to the command from the Old Testament, it's to love your neighbor as yourself. So you feel it in your own body. So it's very difficult to be like Jesus without the ability to have compassion on others, to feel in your gut their hardship and their pain. But second of all, love needs to be caring. In Luke 10, 34, the Samaritan took action. Yes, there was compassion and feeling but he didn't just leave it there. Oh, poor guy. I feel for him. You know, in First uh, John, we're told that if you see your brother in need, but have no pity on him, not, not just saying, oh, I'm sorry, you're, you're, go war be warm and well fed. That's pity in one way. But if you don't take action, John says, how can the love of God be in you? See, the Samaritan didn't just say, oh, poor guy. I feel for him. He knew that if he was going to really help, he was going to actually have to show care, to take action. And love is caring, taking action. To love others, we can't just feel their pain. We need to actually act in a way that shows that we care. And unless we act in accordance to the compassion that we feel, then we're hypocrites. And we're not actually living out the kind of love that God calls us to. And the love of God, like John says in First John, is not really even in us. In the Gospels, whenever it tells us that Jesus felt compassion, Often we read that he was moved with compassion, which implies that he did something, right? There's a movement. In every situation where he was moved with compassion, or he was full of compassion, that prompted him to do something for somebody. So he would feed somebody, or he would heal somebody, or he would teach somebody. Because compassion without caring 
active caring isn't real love. Lastly, love is costly. In verse 35, we see that this whole ordeal costs the Samaritan time, energy, and money. Jesus modeled sacrificial love. To forgive us of our sins cost Jesus his home in heaven at the very, very beginning, then his comfort on earth, uh, and then his very life. You know, C.S. Lewis is a uh, Christian author uh, back in the mid-1900s. He had been an atheist who became a Christian uh, after trying to disprove the Bible. But God's truth just kind of rattled in him, and he knew that he had to respond in truth. And as he began to contemplate the life that Jesus has called us to live, especially by way of sacrifice, C.S. Lewis wrote this, I do not believe that one can settle how much we ought to give. I'm afraid the only safe rule is that we need to give more than we can spare. In other words, if our expenditure on comforts and luxuries and amusements is up to the standard common among those with the same income uh, as our own, we're probably giving away too little. If our charities do not at all pinch or hamper us, I should say they are too small. There ought to be things that we should like to do, but cannot do because our charitable expenditures excludes them. In other words, what C.S. Lewis is saying is, is that if we, uh, by our level of income, do exactly the same as ever, other people on our level of income, then we really are not, even if we give things away, we are really not sacrificing at all. We're not really giving sacrificially. Um, he says there, there should be things that you want to do, but you have chosen not to do or cannot do because you have chosen to make your love costly right? Even giving, when it's based merely on convenience, is not the kind of generosity that our Heavenly Father has called us to live by. If, if we're giving because it's convenient, that's not the kind of love that God calls us to. We, we are to actually sacrifice from our own selves, our own lives, in order to love like Jesus loved us. And so if that's how we're to love, with compassion and with care and with cost, now there's got to be a way of seeing how our lives actually measure up to that standard. See, it's easy to see the parallels from the parable as they relate to our world. We live in a society now that has become dehumanized. We've got a generation of people who've been brought up to believe that human life is not worth very much. We, we have come to love things and use people rather than the other way around. In that way, so many people can relate, unfortunately, to the thieves in this story. Because there's this philosophy out there that they live by that's what yours is mine. I'm going to take what you have because I'm not content with what I have. I, I feel like i got to take what you have in order for me to be happy. But secondly, there's this uncomfortable observation that we see in the story because the first two guys that came across this beaten up Jewish man were a priest and a Levite. People who claim to be working for God. People who claim to be religious. But folks, just because I claim to be religious doesn't mean that I'm doing what God wants me to do. The priests and the Levites, I think Jesus includes because they represent the class of religious folks who had learned to look good, to look the part. They, they create this facade that declares, well, yeah, of course we're God's people. Of course we're doing what God wants us to do. We are doing ministry. We're busy. Busy doing the Lord's work, and we don't have time to really stop and care for people. Which is another terrible philosophy. What's mine is mine. So sometimes we live by the philosophy, what's yours is mine, and I'm going to take it. 
And sometimes we live by the philosophy, what's mine is mine, and I'm going to keep it. It's my time. It's my business. It's my agenda. I'm not going to give that away. See, that's our world. What's yours is mine. What's mine is mine. And yet we're confronted by this powerful story with this higher philosophy that incorporates the two greatest commandments to love God and love people. That philosophy is what's mine is yours. What's mine is yours, especially if you need it. What's mine is yours if you need it. Christ calls us to fulfill the role of the Good Samaritan and to help anyone who is in need, regardless of societal barriers. It reminds us that the opposite of love is not hate. It's indifference, inaction, uh, to stay uninvolved, uninvolved in the world around us. The love commanded in that, those two greatest commandments invites us to develop hearts of compassion and caring and willing to pay the cost for anyone who is in need, anyone who is hurt and broken along the Jericho Road of life. It's a love that should know no boundary and should demand no repayment. See, Jesus is confronting a twisted worldview in a very powerful way. And he asks us, his followers, to make choices that are going to help turn the world upside down. But those choices, folks, mean sacrifice. There's a guy, old joke, approaching the gates of heaven. Uh, he's asked to, to be allowed to enter. He asked to be allowed to enter. And St. Peter says, well, tell me one thing you, you did that was good in your life. And the man says, well, I saw a group of uh, punks harassing an elderly lady, so I, I ran up and punched their leader. And Peter said, oh, wow, that sounds very impressive. When did this happen? And the man replied, oh, about 40 seconds ago. See, there's a guy who is willing to sacrifice, right? How willing are we to have our world turned upside down? How willing are we to be disturbed or challenged? We will never understand who our neighbor is until we are willing to touch the untouchable and to connect with those who have been outcast. Mother Teresa once put it like this, the biggest disease today is not leprosy or cancer. It's the feeling of being uncared for or unwanted, of being deserted and alone. The greatest evil is the lack of love and charity and an indifference towards one's neighbor who may be the victim of poverty or disease or exploited and is at the end of his life. He's left at the roadside. That's where people end up in life. This world doesn't really care. It's got a system that rewards those who are really good and really lucky. But the majority of the people just get kind of spit up and uh, chewed up and spit out. And so we must understand what God wants us to do in reaching out the way that Jesus would reach out in compassion and care, willing to pay the cost. But simply knowing that doesn't mean that we actually do it. If we're going to understand the, the how to do this or what it looks like and, and the who do I show love to, it's going to mean more than just a change of mind. It's going to take a change of heart. And ultimately, that's what the parable is about, a change of heart. Now, where that change of heart originates is fascinating, though, because it, it comes from knowing that the parable of the Good Samaritan is actually, folks, the story of the mission of Jesus. If you go back and consider the story of the Good Samaritan, it's not just a, a, a teaching for us to be nice. Okay? When you begin to look at it, you realize, wait a second, the robbers, what, what do they represent? Well, they represent the world's system in its viciousness and its cruelty and its dog-eat-dog systems, right? 
what's yours is mine. The priest and the Levite, they would represent religion, but not just religion in and of itself, but the ineffectiveness of self-righteous religion. Ones that say, well, I'm going to keep what is mine because I think that what I have to do is way more important than helping, stopping and helping. Uh, A lot of times religious people look great, but once it comes down to rubber meets the road, they really are not willing to do what Jesus would do. So the priest and the the Levite, they, they represent this religious system that had sprung up, that had incorporated itself into their society, but was not powerful enough to change lives. And the wounded traveler on the road, the, the one that had been going from Jerusalem, uh, from Jerusalem to Jericho, huh, uh, that, that traveler, he represents you. Yeah, you who get beat up by life, who, who gets uh, caught up in sin and finds sin to be more destructive than it is pleasurable. So you're laying there, robbed by the world, overlooked by the religious system. But the Samaritan, let's talk about the Samaritan, this outcast, the one who has been hated by his brothers, the one who ends up taking the time to show compassion through caring actions and was willing to pay whatever the cost to see that wounded traveler made whole. Who is that? Do you see it? It's pretty obvious, huh? It's Jesus. Jesus is the Samaritan. So this story is about what Jesus has modeled for us, has done for us. So catch this. John tells us in 1 John chapter 4, we love because he first loved us. The only way that we can love is because we see what love is all about. We love because he first loved us. And in, back in chapter 3 of 1 John, he says, this is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. And we have to lay down our lives for our brothers. There it is. Jesus showed us. In his life and in these parables, he showed us what he wants from us. And the plan is that as we experience the power of that kind of love, when we contemplate the cross, that begins to permeate through all of the rough stuff, all of the sin, all of the self-centeredness, and it begins to change our hearts. And we become different through the power of the Holy Spirit. Mercy has been shown to us, and as Jesus says to the expert in the law, go thou now and do likewise. I've shown you what mercy looks like. Jesus says, I'm the Samaritan. Now you need to remember what I did for you, and you need to now do likewise. See, if you have never come to truly understand how much you are loved, despite your failures, despite your anxieties, despite your sin, if you have never experienced what it means to have somebody actually care about how much life has beaten you up, so much so that they would go out of their way to give whatever was needed to help, putting their life at risk, putting their pocketbook at risk. If you can't understand that, then it's easy to miss. But when you can get to a place where you can accept Jesus' love, a love that's there no matter what you have done, a love that's compassionate, that feels what you feel, that cares about you and actually takes action to, to find ways of helping you and costly, that if he would give his life for you, then something happens. 
you can't, you just can't fight against what the spirit begins to plant in you because it begins to grow. And one day you wake up and you realize, wow, wow, I'm not trying to find the loophole like the lawyer was trying to find. I am loved. There's a song that says, I am loved. I am loved. I am loved. So I can risk then loving you. Because the one who knows me best, though I am sinful, though I am a dirty, rotten scoundrel, the one that loves me, the, the one that knows me best, loves me most. So to change our heart, we must allow ourselves to be loved. To change our heart, we must give our heart. We must receive the heart of God. We must have the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords come into our heart to take up residence there. And as he does, it's then he that changes us into his image, the image of the true good Samaritan. But first, we must truly surrender and say, it's not me. God. It's you. It has to be you. So anyway, that's what we're going to be talking about this upcoming Sunday. And um, I'm hoping that people understand that the Good Samaritan is not just a a nice story about a guy that was good or even a lesson that we need to be good. But it really is a lesson to say, you know what, we've been shown that kind of goodness. And that, more than anything else, should change the way that we live so that we're not just trying to find the loopholes to get us into heaven, but we're trying to really understand what it means to be a disciple. All right. Well, uh, again, thank you to my crew, uh, to Lisa Welly, my executive producer, uh, to uh, all the people here at the church, um, including Steve Pittman, who make it all possible to have this technology that we can send it out. And I thank you for tuning in once again. We will catch you next week.